You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 8 this morning. Sound great in worship. I hope that you've had a good week. Uh, Like I said last week, I'm feeling a little hopeful today. I don't think we're supposed to get up to 100 degrees. That'll be nice, won't it? Yeah. That'll be a good mid-90s sounds nice. I, most of you know my sister lives in Ohio. She sent me a text this last week and said, I think I just sweat for the first time this summer. It's 85 degrees here, she said. I responded, you poor thing. <laughs> Man. John chapter 8. We're actually going to be in the last verse of uh, chapter 7. Uh, and if you've been kind of following along in uh, this series, maybe you uh, looked ahead a little bit and uh, likely saw uh, a little parenthetical statement uh, in uh, your Bible there, uh, where uh, in most of our Bibles anyway, uh, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, chapter 7 verse 53 through verse 11 of chapter 8. Uh, that, that is a statement that I did not want to just ignore. Okay, uh, for a couple of different reasons, uh, I think it's important uh, that you kind of understand what that statement uh, is saying, uh, and I think as as important as that, what it is not saying. Okay, um, a, a faithful pulpit ministry uh, is characterized uh, by at least two priorities. Number one, that is proclaiming the whole counsel of God, and number two, speaking authoritatively only to the degree that the preacher can confidently say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, And so those virtues require pastors, teachers, preachers to reflect on uh, what we call text criticism, uh, text critical issues, how they should be handled in the pulpit. Um, And so, in fact, the term textual criticism is often confusing uh, and is sometimes unhelpful especially if you don't have a clear understanding of what exactly that is. Uh, Because on one hand, it can suggest that experts in the field have dedicated their lives to criticizing the Bible to such a degree that the text becomes meaningless uh, or untrustworthy. And undoubtedly, there are some people uh, whose that has been their goal. That has been their aim. There are people who criticize Scripture in an effort to discredit Scripture. Okay, we know that. Uh, Scripture has its critics. Uh, The Bible, uh, the reliability of the Bible has uh, its its critics. And so we're not denying that. But there are also, at the same time, many fine, trustworthy uh, scholars who pursue the true intent of textual criticism, which is this. It is to determine which of the thousands of ancient manuscripts contain the original words that the New Testament writers penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's incredibly important to us. Uh, one of our values here as a church family is that we, we hold in, in the highest regard the Word of God. The Bible is the very Word of God. 
Uh, and so when we say that we believe the Word of God is divinely inspired, the word uh, is theopneustia, it is God-breathed, we believe that the Holy Spirit prompted the human authors, Paul and Luke and Peter and James and John and others, to include the very words that we would need to believe and obey God and miraculously kept them from error as they wrote. So what emerged was divine truth preserved in ink on papyrus or vellum. And because these words were immediately recognized uh, as, as inerrant divine truth, um, included in what we call the canon of Scripture. All right? Canon is a, is a word, it's just the word that means read. It's a measuring read. And so uh, there was different criteria used to determine whether certain writings should be included in the final canon of Scripture. Uh, some of you probably are aware that there are extra biblical writings out there, things that would be considered historically accurate, for example, uh, things that we can look at as we might look at a commentary. I, I sometimes uh, refer to the works of Josephus, for example, who was a Jewish historian who uh, writes, and in his writing he collaborates and corroborates uh, many of the things that we see in Scripture. And so it, it adds something uh, there. And so but what you have to understand is because uh, this was happening, and of course there was no printing press at the time and all of that. So what happened is there were copyists, basically, uh, who made duplicates by hand for distribution to the other churches. And then copies were made of those copies, and more copies were later produced from those copies. And before long, hundreds of copies were circulating among the churches. Meanwhile... Naturally, the papyrus of the original manuscripts deteriorated. Uh, some of you have been to the, the Museum of the Bible, for example, uh, in Washington. You've maybe been over to Southwestern Seminary where they have some of these manuscripts on display. You can see some of the earliest manuscripts. And clearly, uh, they have deteriorated over time. And so, uh, in, in the study of textual criticism... Uh, that's where this statement essentially comes from. It is saying the earliest manuscripts that we have do not include uh, verse 53 of chapter 7 through verse 11 of chapter 8. And so, um, thankfully, uh, we do have the dedication and the expertise of skilled textual critics who analyze and compare thousands of ancient copies in order to recover the original text of Scripture. Uh, some of you have nerded out on this subject. I mean, you could spend hours and hours. You, uh, you, you dive into some of these things, and, and uh, it's, it's really very, very intriguing. Uh, some of us clearly would find it more interesting than others. Uh, but uh, the Bibles that we have today, here's what I want you to understand, are reliable copies of the original text, and we thank God uh, for the efforts of godly scholars, Okay. Uh, I'm not going to dive off into an entire message on textual criticism or anything like that, but I did want to pause long enough to simply say this. As we come to John chapter 8, uh, we face what some would consider a bit of a dilemma that scholars have wrestled with uh, for hundreds of years. And making that dilemma even more challenging is the fact that it involves one of the most beloved stories uh, in all of the New Testament, the Pericope Adultere. It is the passage on adultery, basically. It is the woman caught in adultery. Uh, and it's an amazing story that many, if not most of you, are very familiar with. And I will tell you this. Um, I believe that there's solid evidence that would suggest that this section was not original to John's narrative. 
Okay, in fact, if, if you do have a copy of God's Word that has this footnote, uh, you might notice if you look down at the footnote to what it says. In the ESV, it says, Some manuscripts do not include this text, uh, 753 through 811. Others add the passage here or after chapter 7, verse 36, or after chapter 21, verse 25, or after Luke 21, 38, with variations in the text. Okay, and so I, I do want to address that. I will say this, whatever position we take, I simply cannot ignore this text as worthless, first of all, or a text that shouldn't be preached. Now, I brought along a chart that I wanted to show you. This will really uh, impress you. If you, you guys could throw that slide up there right quick. Um, I know you probably can't see that real well. Uh, in the app today, we uh, put in a link there that takes you to an article that was written by a guy named Timothy Miller. He's a New Testament professor at Detroit uh, Seminary. Um, and and it uh, was originally, I think, published in Themelios magazine. Um, but it's a, it's a rather lengthy article that kind of unpacks what you see representing there like 11 different positions just on this text alone, like how we handle this. And you will notice what, what I would consider an extreme take on this thing is this, you skip it without mention, as if it doesn't even belong in the Bible, so we shouldn't even, we should just like basically cut it out, Okay. That's not the position we're holding, okay? And so you, you see how complex it can get when you look at some of these things. And I, I don't want to just be dismissive of this, but I do want you to have an understanding. And the main reason I do is because I don't want you to see a statement like that in your Bible and think, well, are our Bibles even reliable? And some would suggest to you that, well, when you see that kind of a statement in your Bible, that, that's probably, you know, some liberal group came in and they just wanted to cut pieces out of the Bible because they didn't like That's not what's happening here. Okay, I believe it is a factual statement there to, to say uh, that the earliest manuscripts do not include this section of the text. So don't know exactly where it fits, but I do know uh, that the point of this story, that is the foundation of righteousness is grace and not law. That's really the foundation of this story, is definitely a point that the scriptures make explicitly elsewhere. So let's say we did just skip over this. Let's say we cut it out of our Bibles, okay? What we would lack is the color that this narrative provides for us. Okay? When I was uh, in East Texas for 11 years, I had the opportunity to uh, do Friday night football as a color commentator on the radio. So I had my partner who did play-by-play. -play, I did color commentary. And so my job was uh, to uh, make the broadcast more listenable, if you want to say it that way. Uh, to help people visualize what they could not see with their eyes, okay? Uh, and so you add color commentary. You even see the same thing on, uh, on, on TV, for example. So they're adding different things, things of interest. Maybe it's a, a personal interest angle about a particular player, or they're throwing in some statistics and things like that that add color uh, to what it is that you're watching, okay? And so, which, by the way, the Longhorns beat Alabama last night. Anybody aware of that? I I got a few long words. Anyway, I digress, okay? I digress. That's all I'm going to say about that. But um, anyway, uh, we know that the point of this story, the foundational story, is explicitly, clearly taught in Scripture, uh, even in other places. And so this is, it's not as if this is something that's like anti-Scripture. It's not opposed to other texts in, uh, in our Bibles or anything like that. It also is very much in keeping with the character and nature of Christ himself. 
It's not as if this story is like some kind of an anomaly and we're just like, Ooh, who is this Jesus all of a sudden? This looks like a different Jesus than we see elsewhere in the Gospels. That, that's, not that, that's not what's happening here, okay? So I want you to understand what I'm saying. We have a, our Bibles are reliable, okay, trustworthy, okay? Um, but the truth that this teaches is, it very much remains intact even if we do not have Uh, this little section of scripture. I do believe personally that it is historical, that it is accurate, and it should be taught. And so that's what we're going to do today. So let's, with that, let's look at chapter 7, verse 53. Uh, In most of your Bibles, it is actually included with chapter 8. It is, uh, it's kind of parenthetical itself. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you look at our text today, you'll find that it it plays out in three scenes. And I want us to unpack those three scenes together uh, this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, the religious leaders try to trap Jesus. The religious leaders try to trap Jesus. What was their motivation in all of this? What were they really trying to do? So Jesus enters the temple area in Jerusalem, sits down to teach. People jam close around him to hear his words. And then working their way through this crowd, picture this in your mind, interrupting Christ's teaching perhaps, elbowing the listeners aside, comes this group of religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, who are dragging with them essentially this woman. They make the woman stand in front of Jesus, right in the middle of the crowd, and they say, teacher, we have caught this woman in the very act of committing adultery. In other words, she was caught red-handed, right, in the very act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, but what do you say? And maybe you're thinking already, wait just a minute, something is wrong here. Something's not quite right. Something seems a little off. After all, she was committing adultery. So that may lead you to naturally ask the question, where's the dude? Like, where's the guy here, right? Okay, so what is going on? I think one of the things we see here is power exposing exposing itself in a very gruesome sort of way. But maybe you're going, I thought adultery took two. And you know what? Even back then, they, they, they knew that it took two as well. They may have lived a long time ago, but they knew how it worked, okay? And for those familiar with Old Testament law, you know that in Leviticus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 22, the punishment for adultery is for both the man and the woman, not just one. 
And so they're really not being completely honest here, are they? No, they're saying, you know, in the law, Moses tells us we're to stone such women. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not telling the whole story. So, so where is the guy? And so right at the beginning, you realize something is going on below the surface in this situation. And then there's another facet of the situation uh, that, that is puzzling as well. Why are the scribes and Pharisees involved in this? Such a charge would have usually been brought by a family member, a member of the community, a neighbor perhaps, someone more closely associated with the offense and the offender and the offended. The scribes and Pharisees were some of the leading people in Jerusalem. So why in the world would would much of the power structure of Jerusalem be bringing this case to Jesus? Well, the very next verse explains it for us. It says, they did this to test him. Translation, they did this to trap him. The whole situation is a setup. Okay, in fact, the original language would, would strongly suggest to us that this woman was set up even. Okay, this was part of this scheme to trap Jesus, the enemies of Jesus building a very neat little legal box around him in order to trap him. And this isn't the first or only time that we see this in Scripture. Uh, it was typically religious leaders. Uh, they would bring up some question or something, all in an effort to, to paint Jesus into a corner, as it were, or to trap him. And so uh, the idea would be, however he responds, it's a lose-lose situation for Jesus. It's heads we win, tails you lose kind of thing. That's what's happening here. Understand this. The, these individuals didn't care nearly as much about the law of God as they let on. And they certainly didn't care for this woman. Okay, All they wanted to do was trap Jesus, and they were sure that they had impaled Jesus on the horns of this dilemma. And so if Jesus said, don't stone her, then they would say, well, this can't be the Messiah because he breaks the law of Moses. On the other hand, if Jesus had said stone her, then he would be breaking the Roman law because only the Romans could carry out capital punishment. They alone could execute someone. And so these religious evildoers, they're just cackling with delight because they were certain they had trapped Jesus. This was a aha, gotcha kind of moment. He had no way of escape. What they failed to remember or realize even was that they were dealing with God in the flesh who has unlimited knowledge and wisdom. So that's scene one. Religious leaders trying to trap Jesus. Scene number two is Jesus judges the judgmental. Jesus turns the table on these religious leaders. And the first thing to notice about Jesus is that he didn't answer them quickly. He first refused to say anything. In fact, some would suggest that, that even Jesus stooping down to write in the, in the, 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 the dirt was kind of a way of essentially ignoring them in a way. It'd be kind of like me. If you came up to me and asked me a a completely ridiculous question that would be out of line uh, or something like that, and for me to just go, oh, are you kidding me right now? I could turn around like this. I would just like, that's saying something to you, right? Okay, in my communications classes, that that was called nonverbal communication. So I think in some ways what Jesus was saying is, please. Like he knew their heart. He knew their motivation, all of those things. Uh, And so, uh, but what what we see here is this incredible wisdom. Whenever you're facing a difficult situation, be careful to think twice or three times before you speak. Scripture tells us about the foolishness of answering a matter before you hear it. 
before you really process what it is that you're considering. Uh, in fact, we have reason to believe that Jesus didn't even really look at the accusers. But he stooped down and started writing in the dirt. Now, what did he write? Isn't that always the question whenever we look at this text? We're just like, what, what was Jesus writing in the dirt? What was that all about? Well, we don't know for certain. Uh, it's not recorded for us. But whatever he wrote, we do know this. It had a huge impact on these bloodthirsty accusers. Some say that he was just doodling, just, just buying time. It was part of this gesture to basically say, I'm not even going to give credence to what it is you're bringing to me in this moment. That's a possibility. Uh, now, it's interesting that Deuteronomy chapter 9 does speak about the finger of God writing, right? Remember that? Moses said, on the day of the assembly, the Lord gave me the two, tone, the two stone tablets inscribed by God's finger. So Jesus, I guess, could have been writing out the Ten Commandments in front of those men. And adultery certainly would have been one of those Ten Commandments. But there were also nine others uh, that could apply to these rock throwers. Okay? Or, here's another possibility, an interesting one. Maybe he was writing the names of each of these men. There's a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 17, I think in the... The app, it says Jeremiah chapter 1. That was my mistake this week. It's actually Jeremiah 17. It says, all who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, okay, the fountain of living water. And so it's based upon that that some would surmise that Jesus perhaps was writing the names of these individuals. That certainly would have opened their eyes. What if Jesus had written each of their names in front of them? I mean, they'd have been thinking, how does this rabbi, how does he know my name? Um, remember this, Jesus knows everyone's name, okay? Then Jesus glanced up at these rock throwers and he says, go ahead, stone her. And they're thinking, okay. They're thinking, man, he's walked right into this trap that we've set for Jesus, okay? And on this deeper level, as they're trying to pit Rome with Jerusalem, they're thinking, yes, he's walked right into this. And and, and, and so uh, they're saying, go, go ahead and stone her. But, but, the one who is without sin should cast the first stone. Well, they didn't see that coming. <laughs> then he bent down and continued to write in the dirt. So what did he write the second time? Well, again, we don't know. We're not told. Some have suggested that it was maybe at this point that Jesus didn't write the names of the accusers, but instead maybe he began to write the names of their girlfriends. (laughs) Whatever Jesus wrote, it worked. And while his head was still down, you can just imagine he heard the sound. Thud. 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 As one after another, they dropped those stones Now think about that for a moment. What's happening here? I mean, we're seeing Jesus at his best. Jesus in this confrontation, as it were, with the religious leaders of his day, those who would try to discredit his ministry and paint him into a corner. And, uh, and Jesus, he owns the moment, quite literally. Then number three, I want you to notice what Jesus does with this woman. Scene number three, Jesus transforms a sinful woman. Just imagine for a moment that you're this woman. Everyone's had a bad day, right? Some of us say, I've had a lot of bad days, Pastor. I have too. 
But I gotta think this was very likely her worst day. She was involved in sexual relations with a man, and in the middle of it, strange men with rough hands rush into her and drag her out to, to kill her, basically. She's brutally tossed before Jesus. Men with stones in their hands demand that she be killed. She knows the penalty for adultery, so she fully expected I was supposed to die that day. And you can just imagine her. You can almost see her cowering there in a pool of tears and shame. She's heard the anger and the voices of these men who plan to stone her to death. She heard the conversation that Jesus had with him. Finally, it grows quiet. She looks up into the eyes of Jesus. That's where grace meets disgrace. That's where mercy meets misery. Jesus faced her. He forgave her, and he freed her. Think about that for a moment. As their eyes met, Jesus asked her, where are those who accuse you? Where'd they all go? No one condemns you? She said, none. Jesus then forgave her. He said, I don't condemn you either. Now, he didn't condone her sin. Now, he cleansed her of her sin. Now, think about it. There was only one man there who was qualified that day to throw a stone at her, and it was the sinless Savior into whose eyes she was looking now. But Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then he freed her. He gave her a new purpose for life. He said, go now and don't live this life of sin anymore. He had a new plan for her, a new direction for her life. His plan was not to harm her, but to give her a hope and a a future. And what had started as likely the worst day of her life turned into the very best day of her life. That's what amazing grace does. There comes a time when each of us must come face to face with Jesus and receive his forgiveness. And he frees us to live a life full of purpose for him and for his glory. Now there's some important questions that leap out of this text, some life lessons that come from this great encounter where misery and mercy meet, where grace meets disgrace. Question is this, are you holding any rocks of judgmentalism today that you need to drop? Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, Pastor, I I, I can't possibly identify with these religious leader guys who were trying to trap Jesus. Oh, really? You ever found yourself in the sandals of a self-righteous individual? You see someone do something that creates in you a sense of moral or righteous indignation and superiority. See, that's what legalism will do. Legalism likes to keep score. Legalism likes to compare. Legalism likes to say, I'm better than you because I don't do what you do and you don't do what I do. And that's what legalism does. You want to do something about it, and so it just kind of lights a fire in you. Maybe you burn with anger until all you want to do is wind up and throw a rock of judgmentalism at that individual. I'm going to tell you something. There is someone in Scripture who is described as and called the accuser, and it's the devil himself. He's referred to by one of his names is he's the accuser of the brethren. The enemy accuses the righteous day and night. 
Please tell me I'm not the only one in the room this morning who's found myself lying awake at night contemplating and considering all the garbage that the enemy will dredge up and throw it back in your face. He's the accuser. You shouldn't be a pastor. You're not good enough to be a pastor. You shouldn't. You, you know how you failed miserably? I mean, he's just like, just heaps up the doubt and the fear and the, all those things. A lot of people whose hands are full of judgmental rocks. These were religious leaders ready to stone this woman to death. And there are many people today who have been stoned and wounded by self-righteous people in the church. A lot of pain, a lot of damage has been caused in the name of religion. What's that in your hand today? Is it, a, is it a rock and maybe you find yourself obsessed with a sense of always being cynical and hypercritical? You cannot have an open hand of grace as long as you're holding on to those types of judgmental rocks. The message of the Holy Spirit perhaps for you today is to drop your judgmentalism. Matthew 7, Jesus said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But you have a log in your own eye. First get rid of the log in your eye, then you can see clearly to help your brother with the speck that's in his eye. Do you have some rocks of judgmentalism that you need to drop today? Do you find yourself at times thinking how good you are because you don't do certain things that other people might do? Or you do things that others don't do? Maybe you're here today and you need forgiveness. Is that you? Jesus offers to pardon you. He offers to pardon you. So in this encounter, who, who needed forgiveness? We could pretty quickly say, well, clearly this woman needed forgiveness. right? I mean, she's the accused. She's the, the guilty one who's brought to, were brought to Jesus by these religious leaders. But the truth of the matter is that all of those accusing her also needed forgiveness. And what Jesus wrote and what he said brought them under the conviction of their personal sin. Jesus invited the first one without sin to throw the first stone. Put yourself in their sandals for a minute. As this truth, this thought hit them and they were like, well, that's not me. <laughs> that's, that's not me. If the same scene were being played out today right here at First Baptist Church of Van Alstine, I said, hey, y'all ready to condemn someone today? How about this? Those of you who are without sin, we'll let you be the, the first ones to throw a stone. Anybody in the room this morning going to be winding up? I'm not. I'm not. You see, the more we mature, the more we realize our need for grace and forgiveness. What Jesus said to this woman was an act of mercy and grace. He told her he didn't condemn her. Then he told her not to sin anymore. Her pardon wasn't dependent on her behavior. Let me say that again because you might have missed it. This is an important part of this whole encounter. Her pardon wasn't dependent on her behavior. He didn't say, now if you'll go live a righteous life, if you'll go live a chaste life, then I'll forgive you. No. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. 
Her pardon was her motivation to change her behavior. That's grace. And grace is just the opposite of legalism. You see, legalism says, sin no more and I won't condemn you. Grace says, I don't condemn you, now go sin no more. Legalism says, sin no more and I won't condemn you. Grace says, I don't condemn you, now go sin no more. I came across an article this past week that contained a letter written by a guy who was serving time in a California prison. He had had a a desperate drug addiction, was selling drugs and so forth, led to just a miserable life. And the saddest thing is that he was actually the son of a California pastor. But in commentating on this encounter that Jesus had with this woman, he compared it to his bad experience with the church. And I thought this was pretty insightful. He wrote this. He said, Jesus first said to the woman, I forgive you. I love you. And then he told her to change. He said, churches tend to do the opposite. They say, change, and then we'll love you. You ever have a conversation with somebody, and maybe you're trying to steer it toward the gospel, or maybe you're talking about church and that kind of thing, and they'll say something like, well, I've just got some stuff in my life. Before I could come to that church, I would have to get some things cleaned up. They say something like that. I'm like, that's like saying, I need to get cleaned up before I can take a bath. And I think we have to be very careful that we not take this kind of approach to the world around us. It's clear we live in a very broken, sinful world. And you want to know who else still struggles with sin? We do. We do. And so let's be careful that we not get on some religious high horse and think that somehow, some way, that, that, that we need God's grace any less than anyone else. Here's another truth I want us to see today. Jesus doesn't excuse our sin. He went to the cross to pay for it. Jesus told this woman that he didn't condemn her. He forgave her. But it wasn't as if Jesus just flippantly said, oh, it's okay, no harm, no foul. No. When he forgave this woman, he was was only weeks away from being nailed to the cross. This woman didn't have to be penalized for her sin because Jesus is going to take her penalty on the cross. Jesus is saying to this woman caught in adultery, your past is in the past. You have a new future. You have a new future. He removed her sorrow and shame that day. And on the cross, he experienced her sorrow and her shame. And Jesus experienced the guilt and the shame and the sorrow of all sinners of all time. And the Bible says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Bible says he made the one who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, wrote this. He said, every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as witness and judge against himself before he comes to others. In this manner shall we, without hating men, make war with sins. And he went on to write this. In this verse, we see what is the design of the grace of Christ. It is that the sinner being reconciled to God, may honor the author of his salvation by a good and holy life. If there's anyone who understood this tension between the law and grace, it was the Apostle Paul. 
you know the story of the Apostle Paul, you know that before his conversion, his miraculous conversion on that road to Damascus, you know that he was known as a persecutor of Christians. And here's the thing we sometimes forget. He was doing that in the name of religion. He thought he was doing God a favor by exterminating these people of the way. Some of these earliest followers of Jesus. He was dragging them off, persecuting them. He was there for, 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 for Stephen's martyrdom, right? The Bible says he's the one who held the cloaks of those who, who stoned him. So if anybody knew this tension, it was the Apostle Paul. And I want, I want to remind you of what he wrote to the church at Galatia. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, the Apostle Paul writes this. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What is he saying? He's saying, come to him for grace. And then set your face to sin no more. Choose every day to walk with him in his mercy and his grace. And the beauty of the gospel. If we could together bow our heads for just a moment this morning. As you look at this account today, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit has convicted you that you all too often play the part of the Pharisee, the religious leaders. There's a religious pride that often rears its ugly head. It's this weird thought process that would suggest to us that somehow we don't need the grace of God quite as much as some other people do. So if you're here today and you find yourself more often than you'd like to admit playing the part of the Pharisee, ready to pick up those stones of judgmentalism, cast them at someone else that you think is much worse than you. Would you you just pause for a moment and hear the words of Jesus? As he says, go ahead. Go ahead. Those who are without sin, you, you, you go first. Maybe you're here today and you need to rock, drop some rocks of judgmentalism. Maybe you're here today and you would say, Pastor, there's never been a time in my life where I turned from my sin to faith in Jesus Christ. 
maybe like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, you're on this pathway thinking that somehow, some way, you can be good enough. You can do enough good things. Where you can be better. But the Bible says that our righteousness in and of itself is like dirty laundry. It's like filthy rags. Even on our best day, we can't be good enough. You may think that you're doing a really good job of crossing every T and dotting every I. It's not enough. It's only as you turn from your sin and your self-righteousness to faith in Jesus Christ that his grace can meet your disgrace. His mercy can meet your misery. And you'll find forgiveness and freedom like this woman in John 8. Father, thank you for your word today. Lord, we thank you for amazing grace. I pray for anyone here today that has never turned from their sin to faith in you. I pray that by the power of your word and the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, they would be drawn to you today. Lord, forgive us when we're so quick to pick up the stones of judgmentalism ready to condemn others all the while failing to look in the mirror and see our desperate need for you every day for your amazing grace we thank you for the beauty of the gospel we thank you that our righteousness is not found in ourselves our good behavior our good deeds as the Apostle Paul wrote, it's through Christ who lives in me. So Lord, we give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.